What's going on, guys? Today, I'm sitting down with Mike Milner, and we are going to be starting talking about uh, starting a diet. Now, this is something that I think a lot of people really struggle with, and so I hope you guys are really going to enjoy the episode. Now, as always, make sure you like the podcast, make sure you subscribe and share with a friend who is weak and skinny and wants to not be weak and skinny anymore. Uh, so first off, Mike, thanks so much for jumping on, man. It's great to have you here. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Can you just give a little bit of an introduction to who you are and your background so people uh, can get a little bit of an idea of, of kind of where you're coming from? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I have a nutrition coaching company uh, called POP, Peak Optimization Performance, or POP for short. It's actually named after my grandfather. We called him POP-OP. So I came up with an acronym to uh, you know honor him, uh, who he had a major influence on, on my life. But uh, I've, I've been in the industry for a little over a decade now started as a personal trainer and then found my passion uh, on the nutrition side of things, just because that was always my biggest struggle. Uh, you know, kind of growing up, I was an athlete, never really had to pay attention or worry about my weight or what I was eating or anything like that. And went off to college and uh, picked up some typical college student habits when it comes to nutrition. And uh, once organized sports was over, um, I gained a whole bunch of weight and it felt like it was overnight. And, um, you know, woke up one day, kind of looked in the mirror and didn't really recognize uh, the person that I was staring back at. And that led me down a path of doing things in all the wrong ways and trying to uh, rip the bandaid off, so to speak, and losing weight as fast as possible, doing a ton of cardio, restricting my calories, going on these extreme diets and really struggled for a long period of time. I, I eventually found strength training, which was kind of like the first thing that really opened my eyes to, hey, maybe I should focus more on being strong and capable versus being less. And I still always kind of had this, this mental block with nutrition. And I saw a lot of other people struggling with the same thing and kind of was like, all right, I'm, I'm a smart enough person. I can figure this stuff out and just became obsessed with learning everything that I could about nutrition and the science behind it. And really more from a psychology perspective, because that's always been a passion of mine as well. And I felt like from a physical standpoint, we mostly know what to do, but there's a disconnect between knowing what to do and actually doing it. And I felt like the the disconnect was with what's going on between our ears and understanding the way that our brain works and why do we make the decisions that we make and how can we create something that's more sustainable. And that became my, my life's work and just trying to help others uh, kind of avoid some of the mistakes that I made and started my own company after working as a nutrition coach for another company for several years and have had my business now for about three and a half years. And uh, yeah, that's, that's uh, where we're at today. That's awesome, man. And it, it's funny, actually, because uh, I've, I've seen a lot of stuff kind of coming up lately, especially on more shifting towards the behavioral side of, of nutrition. Even I, I made a post the other day as well, just talking about how like right now we have this abundance of, of information, but you know, all of the information is almost zero context. And so that's one of the reasons why people feel so confused. Uh, a lot of the time. And so um, I guess to kind of start things off, like when you take on a nutrition client, what does your onboarding process look like? Like what kind of questions are you asking? What are you trying to find out about that individual? Um, and, and I guess this kind of pertains to people who are coaching, but then also people who just kind of want to, you know, dial in their own nutrition. What are the things that they really need to understand and look out for? Yeah, it's a great question. And because there, there's so much nuance to it when it comes to nutrition, when it comes to health, you know, whatever you're trying to accomplish, it always depends. People hate that answer when I say it depends, but I, I get a lot of people who message me, DM me, whatever. And they're like, 
how long is it going to take for this? Or how, how much should I be eating? Or what should, just ask me very specific questions. And my answer is always, it depends because we need context. We need to understand where you're coming from, your diet history. So some of the questions that we start with through that onboarding process, what are things like currently? You know, what does your current nutrition look like? What is your current activity levels, your current training program? What does the stress look like in your life, your overall lifestyle? You know, what is your schedule like? Uh, because if I were to tell somebody like, Hey, you need to get eight hours of sleep. And they're like, okay, but I do shift work and I, you know, I can only, you know, realistically get six hours of sleep. Well, that's not very modifiable just by the nature of whatever you do for a living. So we have to find out like context about your everyday life. We also have to find out about your history, your diet history, whatever other programs have you tried in the past? Uh, because every attempt at dieting, depending on how extreme it was and how long that diet was, if, Somebody comes to me and they've been eating 1,200 calories for two years. Well, there's going to be some metabolic adaptations that occur that we need to consider when prescribing a plan. And so understanding previous dieting attempts, we try and get a sense for their metabolic state. You know, what have they been through? Where is their metabolism now? Just trying to get a sense of, you know, what can they realistically accomplish and what's a realistic expectation for the time frame that they can accomplish their goals. And then we all, we also have to know, you know, where are we heading to? It's like, all right, I know I want to get somewhere. So I'm just going to like jump into my car and type in a random destination. Well, we need to know what that destination is because that's going to make a difference in terms of the path that we take to get there. You know, losing 10 pounds is very different than losing 50 or a hundred pounds. And if you want to build muscle, if you want to improve health, if you want to live longer, all of those things are kind of a different destination that require uh, different inputs and outputs. So uh, it's really, and then we also do a, a full personality assessment as well to kind of get an idea of what's going on psychologically and certain behavioral tendencies and any mindset hurdles that we might be dealing with. So uh, it's really as much information as we can possibly get to make the most informed decision about where to start. I think that's an important clarification to make because where we start is just a best guess, but then we have to see based off of real life, what's working and what needs to be adjusted. And then we can kind of fine tune from there. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I really like how it is a lot more client centered than necessarily like intervention uh, oriented right from the start, because I think that's one of the things a lot of people kind of skip, right. Is, is rather than think about where they're at, they're more like, okay, here's where I want to go. This diet seems like it's a good fix because it works for all these reasons. And it's like, okay, well, does it do what you needed to do? And so that kind of brings me to, to the next question, talking about establishing short, midterm and long-term goals. I mean, you know, I, most of my athletes are performance-based, but still I'd say a good preponderance of them do want to improve their body composition to, to some, you know, to some degree or another. And um, when I was working in person as a coach, uh, I noticed a lot of the times, you know, and I'm sure you probably had this as well, where you'd get someone to come in and they're like, Hey, I want to lose, let's say 30 pounds in three months. And my question was always like, okay, well, first off, how did you decide on 30 pounds? And second, how did you decide on three months? Like what, what's, what's special about those numbers? And then literally they they look at me like I'm crazy. You know, they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, okay, let's put it this way. Imagine you are going to a bank and you're asking for a loan and you say, I want a million dollars or I want a million dollar loan. And they're like, okay, what are you trying to do? And they're like, well, I'm going to become a billionaire through this amazing business that I have. And then they're like, what's your business? And you're like, I don't know. 
It's like, okay, well, you need some sort of a business plan in order for us to, to back you, you know? And it's kind of the same thing with, with setting goals. And so I really would be interested to hear about what your process is and how you kind of guide the, the individual to kind of bring about those answers. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it all starts with, again, like we need to get all the information to know what is our starting point? Like I said, you know, it's like, okay, like you mentioned, somebody knows their destination, but do they know where they're starting? Like if I can say, well, I want to get to California right now, I'm in Philadelphia. That's going to be very different than somebody who says, I want to get to California and they're living in Texas, their starting point, they've got a little bit of an advantage, but then what do they have access to? Well, maybe I have the advantage because that person in Texas can't get on a plane. They don't have access to public transportation transportation and they, they don't have a car or whatever. So now, you know, it's going to look very different in terms of how do we get to that destination? So we have to know where we're starting. And then we also have to understand like the realistic timeline to get there, which is one of the main reasons why we do such an in-depth intake process because, well, metabolically, if somebody wants to lose 30 pounds, but you've been chronically, you know, under eating for a really long time, but it's, it's probably going to take longer than you'd like. And there needs to be some restoration that happens before. And so I always try to present things in kind of a periodized, um, more of like a, like, like, let's take thing, take things in phases and chunks. So if somebody has performance goals, but they also have body composition goals, those things don't necessarily go hand in hand. They can, but I, I always, and, and this is something that I gained from, uh, NCI, Nutrition Coaching Institute, they talk about this triangle of awareness where we've got three points of the triangle. We've got health and longevity. At one point, we've got aesthetics, body composition, and another point, and we've got performance in another point. And the more that we drive to the extremes of either of any of the corners of the triangle, we're pulling away from the other two points. So somebody who wants to look absolutely shredded and their, their goal is that aesthetic side of that, that triangle, that point. Um, and they want to do everything they can to be like on stage competing, like the pinnacle of aesthetics. Well, you're pulling away from longevity because it's not healthy to have, you know, 5% body fat. And you're also pulling away from performance because you're not going to have a ton of energy to be able to compete. If I wanted to take that, you know, bodybuilder and have them, uh, you know, run a marathon or compete in, you know, whatever, soccer, football, whatever they want to play, uh, they're probably not going to be in the ideal shape to compete. So we're pulling away. Now you can live in the middle of that triangle where you've got some aspects of all three, but the more to the extreme that you go, the more you pull away from the other two. So if somebody wants performance, but they also want body composition, well, why don't we take things in phases where we're spending a little bit more time intentionally focused on one side of that versus the other, where we know, all right, these three months, we are solely focused on performance and we're going to measure success by, you know, your, your performance in the gym, your recovery, uh, you know, whatever type of progress it, it could be. They want to lift heavier. It could be, they want to improve at their sport. So we've got ways to measure, is this happening? And then once we, you know, we kind of like hit that peak of their season, whatever that looks like for them. Now we're going to shift in towards this off-season focus of body composition, and now we're going to pay attention more towards like, are we getting leaner? Are you looking better? And now we're we're kind of shifting our focus, so we kind of break things down into chunks or phases, uh, more of a periodized approach. That way, you're not doing things that are, you know, okay, I've got these two different goals, but they're kind of diametrically opposed, and even though they can at times work synergistically, I find that it's a little bit more effective to just have laser focus in one area. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. And one of the things that uh, I found 
sometimes to be a little bit of an obstacle to, to kind of overcome is, is athlete buy-in or client buy-in, right? So e- even if you agree on, let's say, an approach you're going to take, a lot of the times that ends up being an ongoing conversation because they'll be like, yeah, you know, they're really motivated, they get it, they understand it. But then a quarter of the way through or halfway through, they start kind of sinking back into some of their old mindsets where they're like, oh my God, like I'm, I'm performing better, but like I still want to lose weight. And you know what I mean? And so how do you kind of go about getting that buy-in and then maintaining the buy-in throughout the entire process? Like what do those kind of conversations look like with, with your clients? Yeah, I think that it's just a lot of com- a lot of communication. Um, I'm a big believer in more kind of like motivational interviewing style of communication where it's a lot more of listening and asking questions than it is telling people and then kind of interjecting with a little bit of education from your expert opinion. But a lot of times as coaches, we get this like trainer, I call it trainer brain, and we want to just like impart as much wisdom as we possibly can. And sometimes it can have the opposite effect where if somebody's like, you know, well, I'm really struggling with this because I'm, you know, the scale was up two pounds. And then we want to jump in with our education. We're like, well, the scale can't jump up two pounds overnight. If, you know, from body fat, it must be this. And we like try to just, instead of getting them to come to that conclusion on their own by listening, be like, okay, I understand that you're a little bit frustrated. The scale's up two pounds, but let me ask you, like, how's your performance? Oh, it's great. Okay. And are you noticing that you're getting stronger in the gym? Yes. Okay, great. So um, are you really like focused on strength improvements or do you really want to focus on body composition? Like, well, I want to focus on strength, but my body composition is important and the scale being up kind of messes with my mind. Okay. Totally understand that. Um, Do you think that it's realistic that you gained two pounds of body fat overnight? Well, probably not. Well, let me ask you, did you do anything? Um, did you eat a little bit more later? Was there any differences in, in like, you know, sodium content or how many carbs you had or anything like that? Well, yeah, you know, I ate a little bit later. Maybe I went out to a restaurant. There's probably some sodium there. Cool. So do you think that maybe it's just like water retention and we'll, we'll subside in a couple of days? Yeah, probably like they're coming to the conclusion. I'm just asking the questions. And now that I've got them to like calm down a little bit and be a you know more kind of rational thinking versus emotional thinking, then I can kind of go from the education, like, yeah, you know what happens to me all the time, but sometimes it helps to realize that it's likely not body fat that happened overnight. We know that logically it's not going to happen unless, you know, you ate like 20,000 calories, which I'm sure you didn't, uh, you know, water retention happens. If you're eating at a restaurant, they're going to have more sodium. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just something to be aware of that you're retaining a little bit more water. And we start to then throw in the education when they're ready to receive it versus like jumping right away with like, no, you don't understand. This is how it works. And um, so I always find that if we can ask good questions and get them to come to their own conclusions, and then it realign them with like, Hey, remember this phase, you told me you really want to focus on strength in the gym. And right now I'm looking at all of your stuff and you're getting stronger. You're performing better. You're recovering better. Like we are well on our way. And there's going to be a time to really focus on body composition. And I know that sometimes the scale can mess with your head, but like, let's keep our eye on the prize and like, giving them something to then attach to as, as clear indicators that things are progressing exactly the way that we want. And it's never going to be a linear process. Like, Hey, guess what? There's going to be times where we slip up. There's going to be setbacks. There's going to be failures along the way. We just have to expect that it's going to happen and know that we're going to pick ourselves up. We're going to learn from it and we're going to keep moving forward anyway. Like, are you on board with that? Are you still, you still on, are we still on the same page? Yes. Okay, cool. Like, 
let's keep, let's keep going. Um, so I always find that the style of communication is important, knowing uh, how to listen, how to ask good questions, and ideally allowing the client to come to their own conclusions. No, that's great. I definitely agree with that. And so one of the things sometimes that, uh, that is a little bit difficult as well is people tend to significantly undervalue small steps, right? Um, you know, sometimes they'll get a, a new nutrition client in or something like that. And based on, you know, the intake and the onboarding, I'll be like, okay, I'll tell you what, we're just going to start with this. I just want you to eat six or so combined servings of fruits and veggies per day. They're like, oh, that's really easy. I'm like, okay, cool. Do it. And then if it's really easy, we'll, we'll scale you up right away and you can progress really quickly. And they'll be like, no, 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 but I want to do more. I want to do more. And I'm like, okay, well, how did this work with, for you last time when you took on too much, right? And so how do you kind of impart the, the significance of accumulated habits over time? Like where, where does that come up? And do you ever struggle with that in terms of um, getting client buy-in to, to some of the smaller uh, behaviors that you want to, you want to get them to, to take on? Yeah. I mean, that's one of the biggest challenges that we face because most programs out there take people from zero to a hundred and they want to rip the bandaid off. It's, it's the whole diet starts Monday mindset. It's the whole new year, new you, like every single person, January 1st tries to do everything all at once. And we have, like you said, we can pull from history. Like how did that work for you in the past? But, you know, you probably made significant progress and then the wheels came off and everything went to shit. So like, let's learn from our, our past experience and make better decisions. But I think more important than that, it's to actually reward and, and track those habits that do make a difference. So uh, I call them anchors. It's like the, the foundational things that, that serve us for life. And I always use the analogy, like when we're trying to build a skyscraper here and we can't build very high if we don't have a strong foundation. We can only build this skyscraper as high as the foundation will allow us to. And so we're going to work on this foundation, which is going to be something that we always spend time working on, but it's boring. It's not exciting. It's not, it's not sexy. It's just kind of the boring work that makes the biggest difference, but it's also the most difficult to stay consistent with because we always feel like we should be doing more. And so we're actually going to track and monitor and reward ourselves for hitting those anchors. And so one of the things that I look at is uh, when we instill these habits to become second nature, which is the goal, right? We don't, we don't want to have to think twice about it. It's like brushing your teeth. If I can get somebody to eat well, move their body, strength train, do you know specific things like recover well, sleep well, drink water. If they can do those things without thinking twice about it and just becomes like brushing your teeth or getting dressed, it's just, it's what you do. Then that person's going to win. It's inevitable. And it's only a matter of time once they establish those habits. So the way that habits are formed is we have some kind of a trigger, we have the behavior and we have a reward and our body produces neurotransmitters like dopamine that kind of instill that reward system. And it doesn't take very much to get that dopamine response from a behavior. So if I can get somebody who sets themselves up with, let's say three anchors to start, like they're going to, you know, take a walk every day. They're going to eat a certain amount of servings of fruits and veggies, and they're going to, you know, drink a certain amount of water. And that's, that's where they start. That's their three anchors that they're starting with. Well, if we actually have a system of tracking that and kind of something as simple as a check mark in a calendar, something as simple as like a, an app that they have where they, you know, there's an app like streaks app or some, some other habit based app where they just 
reward themselves and, and seeing like a check mark in a calendar or seeing you like mark something as complete. It's like the whole uh, Apple watch, like people who develop this stuff are pretty smart. They understand, um, you know, the way that the brain works. So with the Apple watch, you like close these, these loops and you like, um, I don't actually have one, but it's like you, you know, you achieve something and there's this way of like triggering that dopamine response in your brain to make you want to do it. And you're like, Oh, that, that was cool. I, I completed this task and, and it's rewarding. So it's the same thing with these things like anchors. If you're just like, Hey, you got to do these things because it's important. Some people might, but you actually, we want to solidify those habits. We want to make it second nature. Um, so actually having a game plan where there's some kind of reward system involved even if it's as simple as just tracking it and marking it as complete. And then the other cool thing about it is you can kind of zoom out and you can see over time, you know, there was probably a lot of days that you didn't complete those three anchors, but you did most of the time. And that's really all we're after. We're not after perfection. We're just going for consistency. And if sometimes we over rotate on the days that we didn't do it and we feel like a failure, but if we can zoom out and we can see clearly, Hey, let's take a look back at the last 30 days. You hit your anchors on 25 out of 30 and you're making progress, that's, that's pretty damn good. Like consistency is where it should be. And you also know that the one or two days, the handful of days that things didn't go all that well, didn't mess with your progress. So we know that when those setbacks happen, it's okay. We can learn, we can pick ourselves up, we can keep moving forward. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. And so when you do come up against a client who has maybe a history of not necessarily disordered eating, but let's say semi-regular periods of like dietary disinhibition, or they have like very dichotomized type of uh, perspectives regarding nutrition, or they're very dogmatic, or they kind of have these ideas around their body image and things like that. How do you actually go about dealing with those individuals? Because that's a little bit more um, sensitive in a lot of cases. Yeah, definitely. And it's a very nuanced answer because uh, a lot of times the root cause can be different and it can manifest differently. Um, so I usually like to just unpack like where a lot of that stuff is coming from. First, there are times where you, you have people who are going through this like restrict and binge uh, cycle where it's, it's purely physiological. There's times where just getting them to eat enough and eat enough protein, eat enough quality nutrition, getting their calories up restoring homeostasis like that alone. It's just a physiological thing that alone creates balance. It's like the people who feel like their weekends are their problem and they focus on the fact that they have no control on the weekends, but they're trying to eat a thousand calories a day during the week. It's once we address the restrictiveness on the week, the weekends all of a sudden become a lot easier to navigate. So sometimes it's just physiological. Oftentimes it's psychological and there's a reason for it. There's something that happened to create the dichotomous thinking around food um, or, or feeling like, you know, it could be, be from, from childhood where they often used food as a coping mechanism or as a reward um, or their parents showed love through food. And there's all these different, you know, food is multifaceted. It's not just energy and fuel. It's, you know, it's social, it's emotional. There's, there's a lot more to it. So, beginning to unpack some of these things and, and get to the root cause of where it's coming from. And really it's just an awareness piece. Every process of change has to start with awareness. And if we're not aware of it, then we, we default to these patterns because they're just wired. It's just part of our, the way that our uh, 
you know, our brain chemistry goes, it's just this neural circuitry that happens. If we don't, if we're not aware of it, then we can't disrupt it. And so the, the main objective and to like simplify something that's really a more complex um, situation and can depend from person to person, but to, to simplify it, it's essentially being aware of the patterns that happen, uh, where they're coming from, and then how do we disrupt them? Uh, because ultimately, we just want to try and create a new path, a new um, kind of, you know, way that our brain connects and, and our neurons communicate with each other. Uh, the way that I, I try to, um, I guess, just make it seem a little bit more tangible is it's like your, your brain kind of your, your neurons communicate with each other. And there's this pattern that that happens. And it's like riding your bike over a dirt path the first time that you ride over that path, there's not going to be much of a divot. But if you do that same behavior over and over and over again, it's like riding over that same path a hundred thousand times, that divot is going to be pretty deep. So it's very easy to default back into that divot when the same situation comes up. So first we have to be aware of that path that we're taking, and then we have to disrupt it to try and create a new path, which doesn't happen overnight because you've got a pretty deep divot. If you've been doing this for decades, you know, that divot is pretty deep. So the first time that we try to create that new path, it feels uncomfortable. It feels different. And any process of change is going to be met with some level of resistance at first. But the more that we can create the awareness, disrupt the pattern and establish that new pattern over time, then that will become your default path. So with all of those things, it's like, let's get to the root of it. Let's become aware of it. And then let's try and disrupt the pattern and input something that's a little bit more productive that doesn't mean that it won't happen. Like I always use the, the, the individual who feels like they have uh, no control over food or like they go into the freezer, they grab like a carton of ice cream and they just go to town and it's almost like this subconscious overindulging. Well, if we can just get that person to like take a pause, right? Disrupt the pattern, get out of that environment, just walk out of the kitchen for five seconds, take five deep breaths, then go back in and then make the choice. And the choice might be, to go ham on the ice cream. And that's totally fine. But you might realize just by creating the awareness and disrupting that pattern that you're like, you know what, I actually don't want this and I'll put it back. Or you might decide I only want a couple bites and then I'll put it back. The decision still might be to eat the whole container of ice cream and that's fine. We just need to create that awareness, disrupt the pattern and try and establish something else. And then maybe we can start to equip ourselves with, with other options. Like, can we go for a walk at that time and then come back and make the decision like other strategies that we can start to implement from there? Yeah, no, I think that's definitely a great strategy. And it's, it's funny. So the, you, you talked not necessarily directly, but you kind of alluded to, and you, you mentioned uh, Q reactive cycles before. And um, one of the interesting things about those kind of feedback loops are they're not necessarily dependent on the exact same behavior. So you mentioned, you know, taking a breath and, and disrupting that cycle. And so you can potentially insert like a new behavior in there. And what, what a lot of the, ugh, can't even speak right now. What a lot of the literature shows actually is that over time, the reward stops coming from the specific food that you're eating. And it actually starts coming from just the behavior. So if you swap out ice cream for the, like, let's say carrots, or I, I don't know, something like that. Right. Um, you end up still getting the reward because you're fulfilling that behavior anyways, right? And it has much less to do with the actual food or the characteristics of the food, even the palatability. And has a lot more to do with just fulfilling or closing that feedback loop, kind of like you were saying before. And so it's really funny how your brain works when you do 
give yourself that space to kind of just say, okay, am, I'm going to make a conscious decision whether it's to eat the ice cream or not. Um, and, uh, and, and I definitely think they can be a really powerful tool. And one of the things that I like to talk about a lot of the times too with clients is like a lot of the times I don't think people look at dieting as a skill. They look at it as, well, I've been eating my whole life, so I just have to not eat this and, and focus on eating that. And it's like, okay, cool. Well, can you throw a punch? Yes. Are you a world champion boxer? No. Okay, there's levels to this. Do you understand that? You know what I mean? And so, so it's like, and I don't mean to talk down to people or anything like that, but a lot of the time people just don't appreciate how challenging it really is, especially because it is like a 24-hour thing that you have to be aware of. And so, you know, I think framing in that context of a skill, it's like, okay, well, would you expect to be a champion boxer on day one? Would you expect to be super strong on day one? And people are invariably going to answer no to that. And so I think when you kind of get people to kind of buy into that concept and it actually becomes a little more ingrained into just into their sort of thought process, it becomes a lot easier to understand why they're struggling with their diet in the first place. You know, and then a lot of these behaviors can kind of have a little bit more time or a little bit more of a runway to really take hold. And so I really like that process that you just kind of mentioned about uh, behavior change and especially having some sort of reward system as well and like tracking behaviors as opposed to necessarily tracking the, the outcomes that ends up being a little bit more of like a process oriented um, uh, approach versus an outcome oriented approach, which is then can be very, very beneficial for a lot of people. Um, so can, can you go over like, and I know you kind of haven't really talked about calories or macros or anything like that, but how do you go about um, giving someone some sort of nutrition protocol Let's say if they're not, if, if calories and macros aren't appropriate for them, you talked a little bit about that before. So how, how would you do both? I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, to your point, there's levels. And I think that's a, a great way to frame it is, you know, it is a skill. And I think oftentimes, you know, for people are like, well, you know, eating is just something that I do naturally. Like I should be able to figure this out. And, um, I, I thought your example was a great one and kind of add on top of that. Oftentimes we've been taught to, to throw the punch incorrectly for so many years. So our default behavior is uh, throwing the punch awkwardly or not knowing how to throw a punch at all because of misinformation or how we were raised or just, you know, all of the different dietary approaches that are out there that can lead to confusion. Um, so I think that for an individual who needs help, just simplifying all of that, it does help to start with the foundational stuff. I think for everybody, there needs to be the foundation in place first. So I always prefer, like you said, if it's, if it's easy, then we'll find out that it's easy and we'll progress you from there. But like, we have to start with the basics. And so things like, uh, you know, getting in some movement every day and drinking enough water and um, prioritizing recovery and sleep and stress management. Um, let's check those boxes first. Let's look at your food choices, the quality of your nutrition. Um, so those are some of the big rocks that we can handle right away. Even if somebody doesn't want to track macros, there has to be some level of awareness. Uh, and I come back to this word a lot because if you, if you don't know what you're changing, you're just guessing. It's that, like I said, it's like going, you have a destination you're trying to reach, but you don't know what your starting point is. So we have to know where we're at. Um, so even for an individual who doesn't want to track, we still have to have some idea of what are you eating? What does a general day look like? Uh, how many meals are you eating? What is the composition of those meals? And even without tracking calories or macros, we can start to get an idea of, are you eating enough? Are you eating too much? Are you eating enough protein? Um, you know, what is the quality of that nutrition look like? But I don't like to start talking about specifics until we really have 
the basics mastered. So I'm not going to tell somebody, Hey, you need to eat, you know, three meals a day and they need to look like this and all that stuff. When that person's, you know, not even getting 2000 steps a day, or they're not drinking any water and it's all soda or something like that. You know, like sometimes we find that there's some low hanging fruit. So I always approach it. Like our objective is not to get you from point A to point Z. It's just to get you from point A to point B. And that's going to look different depending on the person. So I might have somebody who comes to me and they've, they've already got a lot of solid habits in place. And now we can start to talk about, all right, well, what does the composition of your meals look like? How many meals per day are you eating? And we might start to see some gaps, like, you know, clearly there's not enough protein happening. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to try and get a, you know, palm sized portion of protein or, you know, however you want to do it. Some people like the plate approach. Some people like, um, I, I kind of use, have used both, but like we want half your plate to be veggies. We want a quarter of your plate to be protein. And we want the other quarter of your plate to be some combination of carbs, fats, depending on what you prefer, personal preferences, your training. So now we can start to get into a little bit more of the specifics um, and just doing it that way. And like what feels best for you in terms of your, uh, how many meals per day in terms of your schedule. Some people actually just enjoy eating less frequently, two meals, three meals. That's totally fine. That's not how I am. I prefer eating more frequently, like four, maybe five meals per day. It just depends on the person. So we can start to get into some of those specifics, but only once the basics are mastered and established. And then I do believe that everybody would benefit from at least 30 days of their life. If you think about in the overall grand scheme of things, what's 30 days of your entire life tracking calories and macros just from an awareness standpoint. So I think at some point that should be a temporary intervention to help create some awareness around food choices and quantity and quality and all that. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I, I have a very, very similar approach in terms of getting them to track macros and calories or, or even just keep a food journal or it's like just something for the awareness piece. And I know you've just hammered on it a lot. And I think people sometimes might get like, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it. But at the same time, most people don't get it, you know? And uh, I mean, people who are the best in the world at, at dieting, like you look at bodybuilders and they don't do anything crazy. They do the basics at a really, really, really high level. And it's funny actually because the awareness piece is so absolutely critical. Like when we look at um, a lot of the literature on uh, self-reported diets, we see up to eighty percent unreported calories or unreported energy intake, right? And this this number, I think that's kind of like at the top end, and it actually scales fairly consistently with with obesity and uh, and being overweight, right? So it's like the more obese, the more overweight you are very likely the less awareness you have on, on how many calories you're actually eating. And I mean, I don't know how many times I've heard people be like, Oh my God, I eat so healthy. And I, I barely even eat anything. And I'm like, that's impossible. You're five foot four and like 300 pounds, you know, there, there's clearly some, some missed calories there. And it's obviously not intentional, but that awareness piece is so, so critical. Um, and, and I think it'd be beneficial for a lot of people, you know, and there's a few individuals it's probably not helpful for, you know, like if you have an eating disorder or something like that. But for the vast majority of people, some sort of awareness piece is going to be extremely important from a tracking standpoint. Um, you also kind of mentioned uh, a couple times like walking. And, and I think this is one of the really underrated components to nutrition is the exercise component. And, and people a lot of the times try and dichotomize it and be like, oh, abs are made in the kitchen or, you know you can outwork a bad diet and things like that. It's like, I think they're kind of two opposite sides of the same coin. So can you go over that relationship and why they're so important? Yeah. Just in terms of with, with activity and nutrition. 
Yeah, like the synergistic component as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, walking in in, in uh, particular, I consider to be like the great equalizer. I think it's like the most overlooked and underrated tool that we have in our toolbox. Like that is, I've got, I've got asked this, you know, on several different podcasts and people are like, for the person that's like the pure beginner, where would you have them start? And they're asking me about nutrition. And I'm like, I would have them walk more. I wouldn't tell them anything about their nutrition. I would just have them walk more. That would be step one. Um, it is so beneficial for so many reasons, um, not just from a physical standpoint, but from mental health, emotional health, hormone health. It's one of the only things that we can do that simultaneously lowers cortisol and increases insulin sensitivity. So um, it's just, there's a low barrier of entry. It doesn't take that much to do it. Walking above all else, I feel like is completely underrated and overlooked. So um, but yeah, I mean, when, when it comes to your nutrition and your activity, uh, they absolutely go hand in hand because you're, you know, there's, there's your metabolism is basically this barometer, um, that's registering inputs and outputs and trying to accommodate based off of the signal that you're sending through those inputs and outputs. So if I'm, you know, eating a certain amount, but I'm training like a maniac and I'm not supporting that activity through proper nutrition, my metabolism is going to adapt accordingly. Um, you're going to start to see, you know, a little bit more in terms of the the stress output and cortisol output, and there could potentially be some dysfunction there based off of that. If, you know, if I'm under recovered, which, you know, I, my belief is that most symptoms of quote unquote overtraining are just lack of recovery. It's really difficult to like purely overtrain, um, but it's pretty easy to be under recovered. So you have to support that training. I mean, that, you know, the nutrition, that's, that's the fuel. That's what helps the rebuilding process. That's what helps um, in terms of supporting your brain and supporting all of the, the metabolic functions that go on in the body. So um, there's always going to be that synergistic relationship. Um, I look at it in terms of, of stress. Uh, I, I typically come back to stress a lot uh, because all things considered, that's really what matters. Uh, when people talk about like calories in versus calories out, Yes, like that's part of your metabolism, but most of it is more from a stress perspective because if I'm eating at maintenance, but I am stressed out of my mind and I'm not sleeping well, um, my body's probably not going to change or I'm probably not going to feel all that great. If I'm trying to lose body fat and I'm in a deficit, but I'm training too much and I'm not sleeping well and I'm overly stressed at work and my personal life's a mess, again, my body's probably not going to change the way that I want it to. So when you look at the calorie equation, uh, it helps to understand it in terms of stress. So overeating is a stress on the system. Undereating is a stress on the system. Your body wants that homeostatic balance. And we have levers that we can pull to help close that stress gap. So the more of a deficit that I'm in, the larger that stress gap is, the more that I'm working out, the less recovery days that I have, the more that I open up that stress gap. So, but I can use recovery. I can use nutrition. I can use things like walking, like meditation, deep breathing, journaling, things like that to close that gap. And so um, I kind of use like the bucket analogy where, you know, you've got water in a bucket and there's a lot of things that we do that drain the bucket of water, but we have to think about the activities that fill up that bucket. And we need to keep our bucket full of water. If, if we're constantly operating from a drained bucket, then we're never going to see the results that we want in any aspect. I don't care if you're trying to lose fat, perform better, build muscle, live longer. Uh, we have to think in terms of stress management and keeping that bucket full of water. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. 
And even from uh, from a stress management standpoint as well, like the impact, like you were saying, of, of walking, resistance training, um, playing sports, any sort of physical activity is going to have a productive um, impact on that. Generally speaking, you know, assuming you're not sleeping like four hours a day and not eating at all, then it'll be a little too much. But that's, that's pretty rare, generally speaking. So, um, so let's say a client wants to lose, let's say, 80 pounds. You know, that's a fairly substantial amount of weight to lose. Um, how do you go about that process? Is it just kind of like a straight diet all the way through? Do you take intermittent periods where you're just on a maintenance? Like what does that whole process look like? Yeah. So a lot of that would, would depend. Um, but let's, let's assume like all things equal and, uh, the client's in a really good place to be able to lose some body fat. Like there's no, um, you know, metabolic dysfunction or anything like that. Um, you know, I, prefer, and there's a couple different ways to go about it. And it really would depend on the conversation that I would have with the client. One way to go about it is we take things in phases. So we have specific, you know, we're going to, we're going to diet for X amount of weeks. We're going to try and knock out a chunk, whatever that may look like 20 pounds. We're going to try and set some realistic goals for a dedicated fat loss phase. Then we're going to, you know, focus on solidifying those results, restoring homeostasis, staying at maintenance for a while. Once we see that your biofeedback's in a really good place in terms of like energy levels, hunger, cravings, digestion, mood, sleep, stress, that sort of thing, then we're going to hang out there and we're going to go through another phase um, and kind of just take more of a periodized approach. Um, The other thing that we could look at is going through periods where we extend the, the timeline, but we're also throwing in little intermittent diet breaks. So it could be something like we're going to spend two weeks at a deficit and then two weeks at maintenance, and we're going to alternate and it's going to take, you know, we're going to expand the timeline because we're not dieting straight through, but we're taking some diet breaks. We're taking those maintenance weeks, maintenance weeks, or um, we can incorporate some type of a refeed protocol where uh, we've got a couple refeed days, you know, there, there's all these different approaches and it really depends on, what that individual feels the most confident with in terms of consistency and adherence. Um, so if, if I would approach, you know, a client with some of those examples of strategies and I would ask, you know, what sounds the most appealing to you, the most doable, what do you feel the most confident with and whatever they answer, I always like to kind of tie it down, like scale of one to 10, how confident do you feel that you would be able to stay consistent with this? And I want to hear, you know, nine or 10, if there's, you know, a little bit of uncertainty, then it might not be the best approach. Um, but there's so many different ways to go about it. If somebody has that amount of weight to lose, I think, first of all, framing the fact that it's not going to happen overnight, but we're in this for sustainability and we don't want you to lose the weight and gain it all back. So we're going to make sure that that doesn't happen, which is why we would take things in phases or why we would take things a little bit slower in terms of an intermittent approach with alternating deficit weeks versus maintenance and kind of uh, making sure that we're not doing anything to jeopardize metabolic state or anything like that. So let's say that individual does end up losing the weight. You know, we extend the timeline however many months or years down the road. And one of the big things is, you know, a lot of people, I know the research says that like diets have like a 95% failure rate, but that's actually kind of not true. They actually have a very, very high success rate. <laughs> um, for, for those of you guys listening, um, where that number comes from is in the rate of recidivism after the diet is complete. 
So most people are successful at losing a substantial amount of weight. And that's usually quantified by about losing around 10% of your body weight. And then when we see that rate of recidivism is when we extend the timeline two, three, four, and over five years, that's where we see the 95% failure rate. And so it's not that people really struggle to lose weight. I mean, some people do obviously, but most people can lose some weight, but where they really struggle is maintaining that after a period of time. So what does that look like for you? Your client has reached the results. They've lost X amount of weight. What happens after that in order for them to maintain that? Yeah. And I, I think it's a great point. I, we, I don't think that we have a weight loss problem. I think we have a weight loss maintenance problem. Um, to your point, I think um, the research is like six out of seven our attempts at diets are successful in terms of accomplishing that. Uh, I, I believe it's the 10% of your body weight result. And then as we extend that timeline, uh, you know, the, the rebound happens. And, and that's where I think it's important to start with the method to accomplish the weight loss, right? Like, what is more realistic? If you were, you know, ripping the bandaid off and eating 1200 calories, then you'd probably, you know, be in that success rate statistic where you're likely going to lose weight. If you like white knuckle your way through a 1200 calorie diet, you're probably going to lose some weight. Uh, it's also very difficult to maintain that. And I think that the more that we rely on discipline and willpower and, uh, you know, white knuckling our way through a protocol, the more likely we are to regain the weight. And I also have to, I also, you know, really um, believe in addressing the mindset side of things through that process. So I think the way that we get there is equally as important as what to do after we get there. Because if I can help somebody get to that place and they're still able to have some flexibility, they're still able to go out with friends and, and not feel like they're ruining their progress. If they start to remove the dichotomous thinking around food, if they start to view this as a lifestyle, as cliche as it is to say, but if they buy into some of the foundational stuff that we've been talking about, like walking more and focusing on quality over, you know, and, and stress management and sleep and proper hydration and all of that stuff. And they have those things established over that period of time. And, you know, that becomes what serves them moving forward, adjusting the calories here and there. Like that's, that's not that big of a deal. Like I like to get people to the place where it doesn't feel all that different dieting versus maintenance. It's very like almost unnoticeable. Like when I, I make small changes, if I'm trying to go through a cut, it's a short period of time. It's almost unnoticeable. The differences in my approach, like, sure. I cut back on drinking a little bit. I cut back on how much I'm eating out, but it's not like this whole lifestyle disruption, which is what most people do. If you think about the way that diets are set up, you've got this, you know, this uh, extreme, like, all right, well, I'm going to jump into a, a protocol where I can't ever eat carbs and I can't, um, and I have to only eat one meal a day, or I have to do all of this stuff that I'm not used to doing. And it's basically overhauling my entire life and more focused around like misery and discipline than it is about anything else. So I think that it has to do with the sustainability of the diet itself. And then the lifestyle stuff, the, the maintenance stuff becomes um, almost just an extension of that versus we're changing everything. And now, because most people, once they reach that end point, um, everything goes back to their default settings. And that's usually what happens. I, I witnessed this through, um, you know, when I, when I was working at a gym and I saw all these people struggling with their nutrition, they would do these challenges. And it was like the challenge and their regular life were so different. It was like, all right, well, I can do this for six weeks because it's only six weeks. 
But then the six weeks, they would lose like 30 pounds in six weeks, but they had nothing that was sustainable. So they would just default right back to what got them into that 30 pound overweight place in the first place. And then just default right back and gain all the weight back and be like, all right, well, I'm going to do another challenge because that got me the weight loss. Well, if we just adjust the approach a little bit, maybe we're not trying to lose 30 pounds in six weeks, but we make it more sustainable, more enjoyable. You don't have to cut out everything that you love. Now, all of a sudden, when you get there, it doesn't feel all that different. And now you have a little bit more flexibility and, um, and, and those things just become more sustainable long-term. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And so one of the big variables, obviously, is going to be helping the individual kind of construct their, their home environment, their social support uh, structure, and all of those things. What kind of conversations do you have with people? Um, do you try and get their spouses on board? Do you try and you know, give them alternatives if they are going out or certain guidelines or different strategies they can implement? Because, I mean, <laughs> you're 100% more likely to... <laughs> to increase your risk of, of eating ice cream. If you have ice cream in the home, you know, it's like, if it's not there, it's very unlikely that you're going to be like, all right, I'm going to get in the car, go to shoppers, drug mart, grab a tub of ice cream, come back. It's like somewhere along where you're probably gonna be like, ah, fuck it. You know, whereas if it's in the house, you're, you're so much more likely. So, so what does that look like for, for you? Yeah. I mean, I think that environment is, is extremely important. Not, not just your physical environment, but all of it, what you consume on social media and, the information that you look at and um, who you engage with online, all of that stuff, all your, your environment physically and, you know, wherever else is, is super important. Um, just because to your point, it's like, we want to create, and, and I am, this is not my idea. This is comes from uh, James clear from the, the book atomic habits. He talks about creating more friction between yourself and the bad habits that you're trying to break and creating as little friction between yourself and the positive habits that you're trying to create. So an example is if I am constantly walking by a candy bowl, like at work or in my house or whatever, that's very little friction between myself and a bad habit that I'm trying to break. Whereas if I am, you know, if I get it out of sight and I don't have to pass it all the time, or if I take a different path and I'm not looking at it all the time, well, now it's, um, you know, increasing the amount of friction between myself and the bad habit now. And, and on the flip side of that, if there's something positive, like I'm trying to eat more veggies and I have my fridge stacked with, you know, stocked full of veggies and now it's, there's less friction. Or if I don't like to cook and I can get something like, you know, frozen microwavable and you can argue, oh, well, the quality is not ideal. Like it's okay. I would rather there be, you know, the, the habits start to get formed first and get in the habit of eating quality, more quality foods and eating veggies more frequently versus worrying about like, oh, is this organic or whatever, pesticide-free, all the you know shit that people over-rotate on. So it's the more that you can set up increased amount of friction between yourself and the bad habit that you're trying to break and reduce the friction between yourself and the good habit you're trying to facilitate, the easier it's going to be. Um, in terms of like social life, personal life, those conversations need to be had because there's a point where an individual might not be willing to sacrifice what it would take to reach the next level. And I think that that's why those awareness conversations have to happen. If somebody gets to a certain point and they're like, yeah, you know what? I would love to see what it would take to like get, you know, abs. I want my abs showing. I want this level of leanness. I want to take it to the next level. And 
they're still like drinking a couple nights a week. They're still going out a couple nights a week. And like, now we have to have the, the sacrifice conversation. Like, Hey, totally cool that you want to reach this goal, but it's also going to, it's going to require a little bit more in terms of sacrifice, which means you might not be able to get away with going out, you know, two, twice a week and drinking, you know, four or five drinks per week. Like, is that cool? Are you, are you on board with that? Maybe yes, maybe no, but that's their decision. And they get to make that choice of, yeah, you know what? I'm actually really happy with where I'm at with the flexibility that I have. There's always that point of balance. And I know that's another kind of buzzword, but you know, for me personally, I do like to have some more freedom and flexibility on my weekends. So I'm okay with not being ridiculously shredded. If I get to have a couple nights that I'm, you know, like a Saturday night, typically my girlfriend and I will go out to dinner. We'll probably have a drink or two. I'm happy with that. Maybe I'll have ice cream afterwards. It's not every night. I found that kind of lifestyle level of leanness that allows me to live. It allows me to enjoy myself. If I want to like get ready for a photo shoot or something like that, sure, I have to turn it up, but I know it's just a short-term thing. And then I, I kind of can default back to where I'm at now. So those conversations are, are always happening because it's up to the individual to make that choice. Yeah. And I actually had a a pretty similar conversation with uh, with one of my clients not too long ago, actually, I think like last week, um, where you know this guy's really busy. He he just he has a new startup. Uh, it's going really really well, which also means he's incredibly busy. He trains four times a week. He's a family man. He just had a new kid, and so there's like so many different variables to account for. And he came to me and he was like, you know what, I I because he finished his cut and he's like, I'm looking to do this now. And I was like, okay, cool. Um, here's what that's going to take. Cause he's already quite advanced in terms of his physique. Like he's very, very shredded, really jacked. And I was like, okay, if you want to do that, this is what it's going to take. And we just kind of sat down tried it for about two weeks. And he came back. He's like, honestly, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> and I was like, okay, cool. No problem. You know, because exactly like you said, it's, it's <sighs> to get from like crappy physique to a good physique. It's a lot of work. But to get from like a good physique to an exceptional physique is so goddamn hard. And it's like there's there's very little room for error. And so a lot of the times jumping to that next level can be super, super tough. And so exactly like you said, a lot of the times people go into it and then they're like, oh, you know what? This actually isn't really what I want. I'm pretty happy with where I'm at. Um, but again, those, those conversations have to happen. So um, we're coming up on that hour mark and I want to be respectful of your time. So it's, it's been really, really awesome having you on here. Where can people find you? Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun. Um, so I hang out on Instagram mostly. Um, my handle is at coach underscore Mike underscore Milner. Um, that's, that's pretty much the best place to connect with me. Uh, anything that I've got going on. Um, usually I post it on there. Awesome. So that's going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. Definitely make sure you go check him out and make sure you give him a follow Mike again. Thank you so much for jumping on the show, man. It was a really great chat. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.